when the fourth round would don't you call in the there's something called syndication in television a process of selling a program's license to multiple networks. You know those TV shows with countless reruns, like Saved by the Bell or Forensic Files? That's syndication. Movies operate within the same system. Like, when it's Christmas, there's Home Alone. Or when it's Valentine's Day, there's 16 Candles. They're movies that fit the season and attract viewers long enough to sit through commercials. And that's the process of syndication. Someone rents a license, fits it into a time slot, presents it to paying advertisers, attracts an audience, and then generates a profit. But for those lesser holidays, finding the right program isn't obvious. Like, what movie goes with Earth Day or Flag Day? Or better yet, Siblings Day? That's why coming across low-risk, low-cost licenses sometimes generates interesting options. And that's how John Waters' 1994 cult classic, Serial Mom, enters into homes nearly every Mother's Day. On the outside, Serial Mom is an odd pick for Mother's Day. Its plot's rather simple. A mother goes around the neighborhood murdering people and gets away with it. This base premise sounds more like a psychological thriller than a movie celebrating motherhood. But this is how John Waters works. By taking the mundane parts of life and pushing them into places that are overlooked or frankly ignored, he forces you to enjoy the awkward yet hypocritical parts of culture. And by taking our peripheral understanding and examining its internal mechanics, you see how a 1994 movie opens your mind to a wonderfully trashy world. Dr. Elizabeth Buchanan, a renowned ethicist and human subjects expert, explains how an overriding theme in Waters' work sets up our understanding. I think a message that really carries through is the notion of normalcy, you know, and, and what is normal. And in some of the, the earlier films, some of these acts and the fetishes and, and things that, that went on were so, so outside what we would con- society would consider normal, right? The irony of it, the satire of it, that, you know, who, who's defining that nor- normalcy? Elizabeth asked the perfect John Waters question, what's normal? Not to downplay his work, it's really the question of every Waters film. Who tells us who's normal and how do we judge it? In fact, it's really the only question to ask before you examine how a child from 50s Baltimore became the Pope of trash cinema. John Waters grew up during the baby boom in Baltimore, Maryland. Like other children in post-World War II America, his childhood was a typical suburban existence. Two married parents, holidays with extended family, and Sunday school. And given the fact that Waters had a seemingly normal childhood, how he became the Pope of trash cinema isn't obvious. After getting kicked out of New York University as a freshman in 1966, he went back to Baltimore with an 8mm camera and a whole lot of time on his hands. With little money and nowhere to go, Waters did what many young artists do. They use their surrounding resources. Waters looked no further than Baltimore and his friends as the inspiration for his work. To this day, the city has been the setting and location of all his films. Elizabeth, who grew up on the East Coast, points out that Baltimore, like other metro areas, is more complex than one thinks. You know, growing up on the East Coast, um, you know, you you have different opportunities to go different places. Um, In eighth grade, 
our class trip was to the Baltimore Harbor, and we went to the aquarium. And I think that was that was my first time in in Baltimore. And now looking back on it, you know, uh, and and to this day, Baltimore is is really very segregated. There's a very nice area, you know, with the harbor and the aquarium, and very beautiful, you know. And then and then not too far away, um, you know, some pretty rough neighborhoods. And you know, if you have seen The Wire, that's the reality. You know, from going there and and thinking it was just this beautiful touristy place, um, and then learning, you know, going into college and and so forth, um, seeing my first uh, John Waters movies, um, realizing that it really was a, a Baltimore is a very interesting place, and and it still is to this day. Baltimore is fairly dynamic, as Dr. Nathan Koob points out. Since the rise of John Waters, the city can't escape being defined by Waters. And while he was rising, he captured the bizarre side of Baltimore. Like Elizabeth suggested, there's a pleasant yet scary side to the city, and Waters hones in on this. For better or worse, it's critical to understand how a high school friend, money from his parents, and dragged helped Waters develop one of the greatest assets of Baltimore, Divine. Born Harris Glenn Milstead, Divine was one part singer, one part actor, and one part over the top. Being teased for being overweight and effeminate as a child, Divine flocked to the counterculture of the 1960s, despite being raised in a traditional Christian household, much like Waters. It was this flight that took Divine to Mavericks, a bohemian hub in a rather conservative city. Here, Divine became part of Dreamlanders, an acting troupe who later worked in many of Waters' films. In fact, it was Waters himself that gave Milstead the name Divine. And as this persona, Waters and Divine pushed every boundary possible. They were on a mission to make the trashiest motion pictures in cinema history. And coming out of the ideal of the 50s, they were positioned to do it. Hippies, drag, drugs, fetishes, sexuality, they used every outlet possible. And with Waters' third movie, Pink Flamingos, Divine established himself as Dreamlander's mascot, with a movie that centers around characters fighting for the title of filthiest person alive, it's scene after scene of exercising poor taste. It cultivates with Divine eating real dog feces. If anything, Divine wasn't for everyone. Loud, crude, and overtly abrasive, Divine was the terrorist of bad taste. But for those who understand Waters' objective art, there's nothing outside of Divine. As makeup artist Van Parks and Divine explain in the documentary Divine Trash, Divine wasn't merely a drag queen. Drag was just coming onto the scene, so to speak. Uh, and it was very in-your-face kind of drag. It wasn't Miss Marilyn or anything. It wasn't like trying to be, um, you know, pass for like a real... Uh, pretty girl or something like that. It was very aggressive, very in your face. I think Divine made RuPaul possible. Um, and other ones. I mean, at the same time, there was Candy, Darling in New York, Jackie Curtis and stuff. But basically, they were giving a lot of real girl, as the term goes, where Divine took on a bigger-than-life type of, you know, character. I didn't want to be typecast. I mean, I feel that I am an actor. If uh, you must call it something else, then I am a drag queen or a shim, I prefer to call it. I hate transvestite or um, transsexual and uh, female impersonator. Well, I just think they're all ugly. I mean, I don't mean the people, I mean the term. You don't have to put me term, you know. 
I said, but I'm an actor, I play a woman, and, and people believe, a lot of people believe that I am a woman. I think for a man that weighs 250 pounds, they can go out and convince people that he is a woman. I think that's some fine acting there. For a girl who grew up in a small, isolated New Jersey town, Elizabeth didn't take divine for granted, so to speak. Immersed in 80s goth and skateboard culture, Elizabeth saw divine in waters as many others did, outsiders. More importantly, they were outsiders doing something productive. They were mocking the world that excluded them. It's what got Elizabeth hooked. I was so obsessed with Divine for, for so long. I think because, you know, I, I did grow up in a really small, very kind of sheltered um, um, place. And, you know, this was it, like, we just didn't see that. We didn't see people that looked like that and, and acted like that. And so it was, it was just like, I, I couldn't get enough of her. It really was, I had never experienced a person like that in any way, shape, or form. I just was fascinated in, in every way. The acting, the ability to transform into so many different roles and, you know, to, to hold people in these films and, and engage on this horribly inhumane level and yet still, still like this character. Elizabeth was so committed to Divine, she couldn't pass up this opportunity. After Divine passed away in 1988, at the age of 42 of heart disease, Elizabeth missed her chance of getting to meet him. But after making friends during her freshman year at college, she took a pilgrimage to Maryland. Two of my best friends in, in college, we took a little pilgrimage to Divine's grave and have a really cool artsy-fartsy black-and-white picture with, you know, us in our goth wear. And it was, it was fun, though. It was like we, we were so committed um, to, to Divine and what he brought to film and what he brought to, you know, kind of counterculture. It just was one of those, those things in college where... We we had an opportunity. My one of my one of my friends that we went with her aunt lived not too far from from the gravesite and said, "Oh, you know, the divine is is buried around here." And and we were like, "All right, we're there. We're we're doing this." Divine wasn't the only thing that got audiences into waters. For some, it was the thrill of constantly getting shocked. They were going places and seeing things made of nightmares and poor choices. But the underlining theme of everything was humor. Some of Waters' films were so underfunded that his mother scored them with her piano. Add that together with cheap sets, cheap wardrobes, and the same actors, people caught on to Waters. It was cheap, it was tacky, and it worked. For some, it was how Waters developed his characters against these constraints that made him successful. AJ came into John Waters right as Hollywood began to take notice. After the success of 1982's Polyester, where Waters worked with 50s teen idol Tab Hunter and musicians Blondie and Michael Kamen, Waters was poised for bigger opportunities. And that happened with 1988's Hairspray, a satirical take on 60s dance movies. Unlike Waters' other films, it had a mild PG rating, his lowest to date. And like all his films, Waters used campiness to examine racism, segregation, poverty, class structure, body image, and so on. As AJ explains, it's how Waters develops his characters that really gets his attention. John Waters artfully makes films with all of the idiosyncrasies of pulp 
pulp fiction and pulp novels and old pulp serials and camp and and high camp and that the almost stage play dramatism uh, of B movies but he does it artfully there's there's an intent to it you, you know there are other films like Packer um, where you can clearly see that he can make a straight film but having his characters play heightened caricatures of the world and the world they inhabit actually gives them, uh, I think, in some ways, more weight or at least more, more artistic impact. AJ isn't the only person to see this. In-house movie expert Ryan LeMay notices what Waters isn't afraid to do. He isn't afraid to cast unattractive main characters doing mundane things. He explains how Hairspray and Crybaby, at their cores, do this. I think maybe on like a weird cerebral level, it's like someone watches a John Waters movie and maybe not Serial Mom, but there's like trashy people in it and they kind of react and then they have to like self-examine as to like, well, why do I have a problem watching a movie where the main characters aren't glamorous? You know what I mean? Like they have to kind of look at themselves as like, does that really bother me? Why does that bother me? Because I know like as a kid, that kind of stuff would kind of bother me maybe. Like, why is Edna Turnblad so gross? But now I don't I don't really see her that way at all. I'm just like, yeah, she's just a working lady who doesn't have a ton of money. So she irons and washes other people's clothes. Whereas in the musical, it's like, oh, she's pretty. She's a big lady, but she's pretty. You know, <laughs> the idea that John Waters was never afraid to go there, wherever there is, he'll do it. And so I feel like some people are kind of, oh, what is this? You know, what are these these hillbilly people in Crybaby, like, oh, why am I rooting for them? They're they're weird and trashy, but they're nicer than the other people, you know? I think sometimes people have a hard time identifying with people that they see as so different than them, even though when you peel back the layers, it's like, oh, I'm actually kind of like them a lot. As Ryan suggests, Waters uses a common tool of his generation, shock value. Like other artists who started in the late 60s, it wasn't a question of craftsmanship, per se. It was more of a question of, what can we do that's almost illegal? Add that and the tenacity to do it, Waters and Dreamlanders accomplished what others couldn't. They had audiences question social norms. This would be a critical part of what makes Serial Mom relevant. As Elizabeth explains, it's one of John Waters' best aspects. You gotta expose yourself to everything. You have to to be open. You have to to really accept, you know, whatever is, is coming at you and, and accept that part of what so many, you know, counter movements, they're trying to shock you out of boredom. They're trying to shock you out of, you know, your daily dumbness and make you conscious of what's going going on around you. You know, and that's what so many of John Waters' films were about, shocking you out of complacency and forcing you to really think about societal issues and alternative perspectives and, you know, uh, uh, race and class and gender issues. There, That's what Waters' films were about. It's trying to, you know, tell people, yeah, of course you're going to be horrified. Yeah, you're going to be, dis- it's disgusting, you know, uh, Vine puts dog poop in his mouth, but there was a you know there's a, a meaning behind all of that, and and that's what I think you need to to focus on. Waters' transition from trash cinema to big budget Hollywood doesn't make much sense. I mean, if Pink Flamingos and Divine were his point of reference, Waters should have made millions of dollars in the fetish porn industry. 
But from 1969's Mondo Trasho to 1982's Polyester, he went from self-distributing to working with then-independent studio New Line Cinema. It's a rather big jump that doesn't make much sense. At the time, up-and-coming writer-director John Hughes was a safer bet than John Waters for any studio. But the late 70s and the early 80s were the dawn of home video. Before, movies would play in theaters almost exclusively, and if you missed them, there wasn't a guaranteed syndication. Now you could buy a VCR and your favorite tape and watch it whenever and wherever you wanted. If you couldn't afford a copy, you could rent it. This was the golden era of movie stores. The rental market was a key part of taking John Waters out of Baltimore and into your home. Even for AJ, who grew up in small-town Minnesota, he soon realized how popular John Waters was. So the weird thing about video stores, VHS distribution in general was, even in a small town like Caledonia, they had a pretty sizable video store. And and VHS distribution was a whole different game than what they've got now. So most video stores, first off, content was cheap. And studios put out stuff cheap. So, like, every B-run movie that was possible, you know, from, like, Basket Case and Critters and all of those, and a lot of the John Waters stuff was available. Not the early stuff, but I would say from, well, definitely, um, like, Crybaby and Hairspray. And I would say from, like, 85 on until the DVD revolution happened, Anything made after that was available, and even some of the older stuff like Mondo Trasho and and that would be on the shelves, and sometimes those were some like seriously worn tapes. So there definitely was an appetite for it, even in the small world down there. Think about it. John Waters could make affordable movies using the same location and the same people, and as the years progressed, he was getting more attention. And better yet, he was getting critical attention. The New York Times, Playboy, and other outlets were reviewing his movies. Oddly enough, well. On one hand, you have a movie that doesn't need much money to break even. And on the other hand, when it gets released on home video, audiences are renting it. It didn't take long for New Line to connect the dots. In 1987, Waters' budget went from $300,000 for polyester to $2 million for hairspray. And to top it off, established acts in Hollywood wanted in. Sonny Bono, Jerry Stiller, Debbie Harry all play major parts in the movie. From an investment angle, it wouldn't take much money for the movie to make a profit. Even if it didn't at the box office, the home video market would make up the difference. And then, on February 26, 1988, Hairspray hits theaters and John Waters officially goes from X-rated trash cinema to family-friendly PG. And to the shock of many, Hairspray returns a 400% profit. The combination of satire, camp, and 60s R&B is the perfect palette for mainstream audiences. It urges then-Rolling Stone critic David Edelstein's famous quote, a family movie that the Bradys and the Mansons could adore. And with that, John Waters enters what would be known as his Hollywood years. AJ, who came into the world of Waters during this transition, remembers how others started to understand Waters. The Hollywood years were where people started getting in on the joke. Polyester was kind of that that last of the John Waters trash th- film thing. But by that time, he had already created a public persona. You know, he'd been on Sally Jesse Raphael or Donahue or whatever. So people started to know John Waters for being a, a, a trash merchant. But 
in that he got the latitude to make those films. And I think, you know, the people that were naturally attracted to that kind of art, uh, like ourselves, I guess, the the weird kids, the the people that liked outside art, the people that were outside, whether they were, you know, religiously outside or gender or sexual preference or, you know, nonconformist of any stripe, um, already saw a home in them where not only were the themes going to be, in spite of the fact that they, they there was the, you know, vulgarity and the, and the amplified vision of <laughs> filth, if you will, um, there was something um, safe about it, that there was something where they got to just be a part of the story instead of an exception in the story. Um, and so I, I think, it, strangely enough, it's one of those things that it, it built on its own momentum in a way that people were like, oh, yeah, it's a, it just became a quirky thing in those later years. It wasn't just the public that built off this momentum. Big Hollywood wanted a piece, too. So in 1989, Waters jump shipped to Universal Pictures, Hollywood's oldest studio. And with this jump also came star power. He was able to attract bigger acts. Johnny Depp, William Defoe, Iggy Pop, socialite Patty Hearst, and Oscar-winning composer Patrick Williams. With this cast, he was ready for Crybaby, a satire of 50s-era musicals, in line with Guys and Dolls in Greece. But it doesn't mean that Waters went completely mainstream. He cast former porn star Tracy Lords and independent mainstay Susan Tyrell. But... By this time, Waters lost Divine. Weeks after the release of Hairspray, Divine died of an enlarged heart. Waters still had Mink Stoll and Mary Pierce, but it wasn't the same without Divine. He cast unknown Kim McGuire as Hatchet Face, who did a wonderful job, but for fans like Elizabeth, it was going to be a challenge. Unfortunately, a musical comedy satire of 50s greasers culture didn't translate well to audiences. A similar concept worked for Greece, but the Waters flair had a breaking point with mainstream audiences. The critics were mixed as well. Gary Thompson of Philadelphia Daily points out, as Waters moves to a more conventional type of satire, he loses some of the edge that gave his earlier films their crass appeal. But a mainstay of the day, Gene Siskel, points to the contrary. For a while, the actors seem intimidated by the 50s references, but the film eventually develops a musical energy that carries the day. Sadly, in the end, movies are in the hands of the audience. Even Ryan's mother wasn't a fan of Crybaby. And he had like, done Crybaby right before that, and I remember my mom went to that with her boyfriend, and I was a little kid. I didn't know anything about it, but she's like, oh, that movie was a waste of film. And I remember watching it later with my cousins and being like, I don't know, my mom hated this so much. It's funny. <laughs> of the nearly $12 million budget, the box office generated almost $8 million. This was a loss for Universal and Waters. But taking in the home movie market, the movie could have stayed solvent. So Waters had his first and only strike at Universal. With that, Waters and Universal parted ways. But this didn't stop Waters from his most ambitious project yet, Serial Mom. Serial Mom was probably the first John Waters movie that I really like. saw and was like, I love this movie. And I remember, I mean, this was, I, I've always bought a lot of movies, but back in the day when Top 10 Video was still around, I rented the same movies a lot and I rented Serial Mom a bunch of times and when they closed that's where I got my first copy was I bought it from them 
For Ryan and others, a serial mom was the gateway to John Waters, and rightfully so. Where musicals and dance movies had fallen out with the general public by the 90s, oddball comedies reigned supreme. This is the era of Pauly Shore, Adam Sandler, and Jim Carrey, who by 1995 released some of the biggest hits of the decade. The premise of Serial Mom is as odd as it gets. Beverly Sutton is the ideal mother and wife, with a suburban home, a station wagon, and a tendency to murder anyone she finds annoying. The person who doesn't rewind their videotapes? Dead. The person who doesn't recycle? Dead. The teacher who's mean to your son? He's definitely dead. Waters' outrageous satire of suburban life, true crime, and the American serial killer love-hate complex fits in with all the other 90s comedies. In other words, if a pet detective trying to find a dolphin stolen by a cross-dressing cop could make over $100 million, a movie about a suburban mom killing her neighbors could too. Ultimately, it was new studio Savoy Pictures that stepped in and Serial Mom began production in 1993. In pre-production, it seemed like Waters was ready to make it in the mainstream. He successfully courted Golden Globe-nominated Sam Waterston, television celebrities Suzanne Summers and Joan Rivers, retained future talk show host Ricky Lake, found an unknown Matthew Lillard, as well as getting alternative rockers L7 to be the fictional band Camel Lips. But the ace in the hole was A-list Kathleen Turner's serial mom, Beverly Sutphin. Turner, who was a major success throughout the 80s, earned several awards and has seen box office numbers well over $100 million. Waters later commented this about Turner. Well, I thought it was possible because she had taken chances before. She had worked with Ken Russell. She made a lot of crazy art movies. She had made War of the Roses, which I had especially loved. So I thought she might go for it, and I was right. And Kathleen still likes to take on a challenge in a movie. She doesn't like to do things she's already done, and she likes to take something on with some punch to it. AJ recounts why Waters was so excited about Turner. Having seen a few of, well, a good number of his movies going into it the first time, I was expecting, I think I was expecting something a little bit more racy, a little bit more vulgar and off-putting. And, um... I what I wasn't expecting that then was um, like Kathleen Turner is a powerhouse in that movie. She is she's really actually pretty impressive, and 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 everything else kind of happens around her anyway. I, I would think she's probably got ninety nine percent of the screen time in it, if not more. Turner's portrayal of Beverly, for some, is an acquired taste. Roger Ebert remarks how Turner's character is helpless and unwedding in a way that makes us feel almost sorry for her. And it undermines the humor. She isn't funny crazy. She's sick crazy. In a relative way, Ebert has a valid point. But for Ryan, it's Turner's absolute commitment to her role and her understanding of comedy that makes it work. Kathleen Turner knows the difference, and so she's not doing anything in this movie to be funny. It's like, no, this is how Beverly Sutphin feels. This is the emotion I'm going through. So even when she's chasing Scotty down the street with a butcher knife, it's funny looking, but she looks intense. She's not, this is silly. I'm running with a butcher knife. It's like, I'm going to get this guy. And like, I mean, maybe, I feel like a lot of movies, if you if you tweak the music, you could change the kind of movie it is. When people make fan trailers of like, what if this movie was a horror movie? I feel like she, her performance could work equally as well in a horror movie just because she commits to the character and is it's a genuine acting. It's not – I mean comedy is being incredibly serious. That's really what B. Arthur said. That's how she realized as a young actress was like, 
oh, the people are laughing because I'm so serious. Kathleen Turner's commitment to the genuine character and not I'm in a I'm in a funny horror like funny movie with John Waters, so I have to be funny. She's just like, nope, I'm acting. Through Beverly, Waters underhand suburban living. The Sutphins are Americana, the small business owners, the stay-at-home mom, and the precocious children. But as the movie progresses, we see a family that's unsure of itself and unable to stop a person who thinks she's improving the neighborhood by killing all of the errors of suburbia. In some ways, they reflect the ugly tendencies of American living. It's it's hard to say because I feel like, for the most part, her family is normal. She's the the weird part about it. So even if you look at the family as a whole, for the most part, they are pretty normal. However, at the end... She gets acquitted, and they're kind of happy about it, but they know she did it. Like, they know she killed all these people, and they're like, I guess we'll just take her home. That's fine. You know, they didn't They didn't testify against her. They didn't – I feel like they – and they all really kind of seem to – I guess maybe Eugene doesn't as much, but the kids seem to really enjoy this fame they're getting, this um, business that they're starting with their books and their pins and movie rights and all this stuff that I feel like they kind of – they really do accept – their mom for the monster that she is and like kind of use it to their advantage what makes the Sutfins so fascinating is how direct water's critique of them is as aj points out there's a certain ugliness to it i think waters is an incredibly aware person to begin with and he has to be to operate the way he does but i think that he's he definitely saw that and i think there is some serendipity in there because part of it was poking fun or or pulling the scab off of that veneer of um, gentility over, you know, the late Reagan suburban family. There's always this bizarre ugliness that lurks underneath it. And he just grabbed that dial and turned it up to 35. Do you think that was really effective, like taking it and turning it up to like 11? Yeah. I, I, and, and I think that as a result of what happened in time in and around it, it stopped being about that pulling the veneer off of the, the banal suburban existence to, you know, expose that deviance and ugliness underneath it. And then you have that thing where right at that same time, we turned all of the that criminality and ugliness in our society into entertainment spectacle. I remember I remember sitting in the student lounge in college for hours on end watching the white Ford Bronco. In the years after Serial Mom was released, Waters laughs at the movie's relevance. He comments about it during a British Film Institute screening. If you look at this movie today, there's weird stuff in it. This was made before the OJ case in America, but it became true almost, the, the stuff that happened in here from OJ. There's a scene in this movie tonight that he told me that was in it, and I thought, I didn't write that line. That's not in there, but it is, and you'll see. And it has to do with, well, Bill Cosby. So. <laughs> Waters makes no excuse for exploring the love-hate serial killer complex. Beverly is the only complex character we see a one-dimensional world through, and through her, we see social customs, understand how they function, and then we laugh at them. As Ryan points out, it's as if Beverly becomes a serial killer you could root for. I think the interesting thing about Beverly Sutphin as a character is you do root for her. You totally understand where she's coming from. And yet you totally are like, well, I remember as a kid, I, I didn't care about any of the murders except Scotty. I was like, well, I, like she set him on fire and the people in the band like 
laughed about it and like that bothered me for some reason whereas now i'm like it's a joke it's like that's the whole idea like yeah everyone is so in the hype that they're like yeah that guy's on fire let's spit booze on him and burn him even more i think that kathleen turner has the ability to be a murderer who you root for and i mean you might not want her to kill people but you you understand what she's going through you understand why she kills who she kills in a way, everyone that she kills in that movie, you kind of do see a point of like, well, they did have this coming or they did, you know, not that you'd really want someone to be murdered for that reason in real life, but you you identify with her motives. You get what this lady called my son, a son of a psycho. She was so rude to him. I better off her. <laughs> I, I think the teacher scene really spoke to me as a teenager because I was a horror nut and I like to draw creepy things and not just creepy things, but... To have a teacher tell my mom, well, there's something wrong with your kid because he likes these horror movies. I feel like my mom would not murder him, but she would be like, no, he's fine. Like, we we talk. <laughs> it's all good. Beverly's actions aren't meant to be justified, and they don't have to be. Like Francine Fishpaw, Wade Waters, or other John Waters characters, she functions as a response to the absurdities that surround us. And as Waters progressed into the mainstream with Hairspray and Crybaby, he didn't stop being himself. As AJ points out, Waters always turned the world on to its own problems. I was thinking about how I would answer this just in thinking about the arc of, of John Waters' films in general and where, where there was kind of a shift there that it, initially it was about... It was really about breaking taboos and carrying the carrying the joke or carrying the the premise too far for the sake of thumbing your nose at convention and really kind of pointing at or, or poking at the hypocrisy of modern life in general. And then in the later movies, it, they really kind of are in some ways direct studies or, or, you know, and I don't get too serious about it because John Waters wasn't too, so far up his own ass in filmmaking that he thought he was doing something high art and philosophical. It, it, he's always approached it as being a trash medium, but where you can, where you can actually take it and turn society on itself or, or turn a concept in society on itself and use it to, to parody itself. When you look at Beverly's actions and the reactions to them, they're hilarious. Bludgeoning someone to death with a rack of lamb for not rewinding a videotape? Or murdering someone for stealing a parking space? It's how Waters mixes the notion of the mundane and the trivial that makes them work. Even after the police arrest Beverly, she can't help but play around with the joke when she says, The only cereal I know anything about is Rice Krispies. For Elizabeth, this is what makes people relate to the movie. It was just so funny because those things that Kathleen Turner's character killed for, you know, they, they were things that anybody could relate to, right? Anybody could laugh and be like, oh, my God, you know, I didn't recycle. It's going to happen to me. Uh, so, I, you know, again, taking the, the absolute mundane and just twisting it and toying with it and making people think, you know, are, what are we prioritizing? What really is important? You know, why aren't we talking more about serial killers? Killing and, you know, psychoses. Why aren't we paying attention to what really matters? 
So when we made this movie, it was the it was the time in the Hollywood system where I had the most trouble ever in my life. It was done for this company that gave me a great advance to make it. I mean, I was very well paid to make this movie in Hollywood standards. And uh, when we had the first test screening, they looked at it and they said, "We will never release this movie." She set somebody on fire in this movie. And we said, "Well, that was in the script." They said, "Well, still, that meant they never read the script." And I said, well, let's have a test screening with an audience that will like it. They said, okay, we had it at the Writers Guild, the audience in L.A. The audience loved it. They gave it a plus thing. They said, that doesn't count. They like you. So we're going to have it in a neighborhood where no one knows you or they've never heard of you. So we went to a neighborhood where maybe Rodney King's jurors lived. In a part of L.A. I never saw in my life. It was so deep in suburbia that we pulled up. I thought, we're going to get lynched here, basically. right? So they spent all this money to have a test screening to make it fail so they could make me listen to them. I thought, okay, I believe you can find this audience. Just put the money in the ad campaign that this cost. Well, I finally won because of Liz Smith, the gossip columnist, who, who Kathleen Turner went to and let Serial Mom live. After the movie was completed, Serial Mom was against the odds. Even with Savoy Pictures trying to stop it, on April 13, 1994, Serial Mom opened across the country. And much like Crybaby, it was a complete commercial disaster. Critics were mixed, audiences barely showed up, and the movie put an end to John Waters' Hollywood years. How could Serial Mom fail while others succeeded? I mean, if a movie about two friends driving a van turned sheepdog across the country could make it? Why couldn't a movie about a loving, serial-killing mom make it as well? As Ryan and AJ suggest, there was one outside factor that no one predicted. Weather. Yeah, so when it first came out, that was one of the uh, like deepest deep freezes in Minneapolis history. While I was living up there, they had a, I think it was 38 below and 72 below with the wind chill and they shut the city down and only ran the they ran the buses for free for 24 hours so i could totally get why that uh you know had the combination of locking people in and then when it got nice people weren't interested in going to a movie theater i don't know why the first weekend of a movie is so important especially now um but i feel like if that first weekend doesn't do well the word of mouth doesn't happen like the majority of Waters' films, there is an instant appeal. We're talking about a slow burn, movies that take time reaching audiences. As Ryan suggested, Waters' films have a word-of-mouth quality, movies that succeed because a friend recommended them. For a man who started out in pay-to-play theaters, three movies that grossed $8 million each is an accomplishment. While Hairspray and Crybaby are heartfelt coming-of-age films, they're leadened with 50s and 60s nostalgia. But others have used this concept to an advantage. They've become Waters' most profitable works, generating remakes, musicals, national tours, Tony Awards, and so on. In fact, the 1997 remake of Hairspray grossed over $2 million at the box office. Although overtly wholesome and devoid of its original campiness, it made John Waters digestible to the mainstream. But with Serial Mom, it's like Waters is railing against nostalgia. The film portrays how a steady diet of sitcom idealism produces dysfunctional families. And as AJ and Ryan suggest, there's a certain timelessness to Serial Mom, as if Waters unconsciously produces an open door between 1994 and today. It's oddly not dated, like the, the cars and the phones and the cell phones and things. Of course, the technology is dated, but it holds up really well. 
it could have been made two years ago and about 1994 and it's still it's still digestible and view, viewable from that frame it was shot incredibly well I, I didn't go up and go in and dig around and look at the budget of it but even like framing and filming you know in a lot of ways some of john waters stuff even all the way up to crybaby had a little bit of that um christopher guest improvisational energy in it that you could really feel and serial mom's a finished movie it was edited and cut exceptionally well and i think it's it's the one that you you shouldn't pass up just because it is it, it's an entertaining view in it and it's a pretty masterful flick even for being what it is there might have been a period of time where it wouldn't have done as well and then now we're kind of back to where it would do well again just in that conservatism isn't really the right word but like the way like with the internet boom and the way moms are always judging other moms and other parents are you know this person's a good parent this is a bad parent and like the way the beverly sutfin mystique of like oh she's such a wholesome woman but really she's not i think i think would speak to a lot of people as like in in today's audience just in that the way we have so much um people putting on airs and you know even with like social media showing all the good stuff in their life but what's behind all that all these good photos of like happy families like well yeah she's also a drug dealer you know or something like that so i think it would play well today as well probably maybe better we'll never know if serial mom would do better today and we don't need to know it lives on and still shows us a paradox where reality and absurdity coexist as serial mom airs each mother's day it's the best world that waters can offer a space where weirdness thrives even in the end serial mom is a testament to one outsider's success and the movie came out, it probably was not a success, not a giant success, but it has lived on and it plays on TV, always on Mother's Day in America. I'll always get a booking on Mother's Day. So I'm really proud of this movie, and I think it's the best movie I ever made. And I thank you all very much for coming tonight in this wonderful honor. Thank you all very much. Thank you. When the fourth round was... Don't you call in the... <laughs> 